You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. The very first national elections in New Zealand occurred in 1853, when there were only 5,849 registered voters. In order to be registered on that electoral roll, voters needed to be male, British subjects and property owners. In addition, they were almost exclusively Pākehā. Over time, the franchise was extended to Māori and women. Today, the current electoral roll numbers more than 3 million people. In this series, we feature presentations which cover a broad range of stories from Aotearoa New Zealand's evolving systems of governance, going all the way back to 1853. Um, Professor Andrew Geddes studied law and political studies at Otago University before attending Harvard Law School. On a Fulbright scholarship, he completed his LLM degree. Um, Andrew currently teaches parts of the legal system in public law courses, as well as the law and democratic process and Bill of Rights, theory and practice papers. His research interests lie in the field of public law, rights, jurisprudence and democratic theory with a particular focus on the legal regulation of elections. He serves as the faculty's coordinator of external affairs. Well, uh, kia ora, uh, to katoa. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to uh, talk. What I'm really going to be talking about uh, for my part of the session is the, the Māori seats, how they came to be, how they became a part of our uh, uh, electoral system, uh, the way in which they've been regulated uh, over time, the, the way they've sort of become uh, controlled and uh, uh, rulified, if you like, uh, over time, and then uh, a little bit about the place that they uh, have today, you know, sort of how, they, how they, they exist today. I'm not going to be talking much about the politics within the Māori seats. Uh, Maria may be going to discuss that a little bit in the second part of the session when she talks about Māori political uh, activity and uh, practice. Uh, so I'm really going to be talking about the, the rules of the seats, if you like. The Māori seats are reserved seats in New Zealand's parliament for representatives who are elected by Māori voters. They are not actually unique in uh, the world. Uh, there are other countries have similar uh, seats set aside for the indigenous peoples of the country. Uh, Bolivia, India, Taiwan all have such seats in their national legislature. The US state of Maine has seats set aside for members of Indian tribes uh, within the, uh, the, the state of Maine. However, the Māori seats are a quite defining feature of New Zealand's democracy. And they're especially notable uh, in an international sense because of the length of time they've existed. Uh, not just that they exist now, but that they've existed over such a long period. The uh, Māori seats date back in New Zealand's elections to 1867. Uh, in 1867, there were four seats established in New Zealand's parliament to represent Māori. Uh, in 1867, it was just 14 years after the first elections uh, in the new colony of New Zealand, to the General Assembly, as the uh, Parliament at the time was then called. In 1867, when these seats were uh, created, all Māori men over the age of 21 were entitled to vote on them. Now, it's worth pausing to note that at this point in New Zealand's electoral history, in 1867, only men could vote. And the voting age was 21, at that point in time, voting was not expressly restricted to Pākehā or non-Māori. 
So New Zealand didn't have written into its electoral laws a outright prohibition on Māori voting. But as we just heard in Jason's introduction to this uh, session, voters faced what was called a property franchise. In order to be allowed to vote, you had to possess a certain amount of money or land to prove that you had the requisite stake in society to justify being allowed to choose the leaders of society. That was the idea. Only people who had property had the actual sort of connection or stake in society to deserve to be allowed to vote. Uh, I think we're going to hear more on this tomorrow when uh, the history of the vote is uh, you know, discussed in more detail. Uh, that idea that you have to have the requisite stake in society to be allowed to vote actually still carries through in our law today. So, for example, New Zealand citizens and permanent residents who go overseas for periods of time lose the right to vote if they remain overseas for too long. A New Zealand citizen who leaves New Zealand and stays away for three years loses the right to vote. A permanent resident who leaves the country for a year loses the right to vote on the basis that you no longer have the stake in society to deserve that right. So, 1867, only men could vote. Uh, they had to be over 21. They had to possess the requisite property to be allowed to do so. And the problem, of course, was that Māori owned substantial portions of land in New Zealand. At this point in time, Māori still owned lots and lots of the land, but they did so in common as members of hapu or iwi. And therefore, Māori couldn't meet the property franchise requirement, which required individual property ownership. So the law, in effect, disenfranchised virtually all Māori men. The representatives to New Zealand's General Assembly was elected with virtually no Māori participation at all. If there were any Māori with the requisite property in the country, they probably could be counted on the you know, fingers of a couple of hands. So, the reason for creating the Māori seats was to allow for some degree of participation on a limited basis. In a situation where the general electoral laws were not permitting really any Māori participation at all. Why then was it felt the need to do so in 1867? Why this desire to allow for at least some Māori participation? Well, it's important, of course, to recognise the point in New Zealand history that we're at. And of course, we're at the point where the New Zealand wars are, if not raging, at least, you know, very, very near in time. So the Crown had invaded the Waikato in 1864. Uh, the military action in the Second Taranaki War had ended in 1866. The East Cape War had taken place in 1865. There were still scattered ongoing uh, armed um, conflicts and so on. And so in that context, the Crown really wanted to assimilate Māori into the new institutions of government. The, the hope was by giving some degree of Māori representation, some degree of Māori involvement in the General Assembly, it would help to bring Māori into the new forms of colonial rule that were being imposed. It would help to bring Māori into, you know, a, a the colonial system. And also it's important to recognise at this point in time that at least some Māori actually wanted a say in the new processes. At this point in time, there was division within Māoridom over whether there should be participation in these new forms of colonial rule, a kind of understanding that, gosh, these new institutions are making decisions that affect us, so we really need to be in there taking part. 
as opposed to a rejection of crown authority and a desire to maintain uh, Manumutahaka and uh, keep you know, uh, Māori control of the Māori things and not be involved. That was an ongoing debate with the Māoridom and at least some Māori thought it was better to be inside the tent. And so, in 1867, these four seats were created uh, to represent Māori voters, with all Māori men over the age of 21 being allowed to vote, no property qualifications attached. Three points to note about the creation of these uh, seats. First of all, there were only four seats created, despite the size of the Māori population at the time, which on a per capita basis should have allowed for somewhere between 14 and 16 seats, given that the European population was represented by 72 seats in the General Assembly. On a strict head-to-head -head comparison, Māori should have had 14 to 16 seats, but of course they were only given four. Second point to note is who qualified as being Māori and therefore could vote in these seats. And the law said, you qualified as being Māori if you had at least 50% Māori blood. In other words, if you were pure descent, forgive the terms, 19th century terminology, if you were of pure descent with more than 50% Māori blood, you were Māori, or if you were half-caste, as the terminology went, you had 50% Māori blood, 50% non-Māori blood, you also could be uh, enrolled, uh, you also could vote in these seats. So a blood quantum approach was taken to who was and wasn't Māori. Third point to note was that the seats were originally intended to be temporary only. So when they were introduced in 1867, they were seen to be just a temporary expedient in the same way as the New Zealand General Assembly had given gold miners in the Otago region seats to represent them uh, earlier in the decade. So the idea was these seats would just be temporary and as Māori were, quote, civilised, they became individual property owners in the, uh, the way that the Crown wished uh, Māori society to develop, then Māori would be able to vote in the European seats on the same basis as Europeans could. Of course, that didn't happen. There was a variety of reasons why it didn't happen. Included in those reasons were that some of the representatives in the European seats, as the non-Māori seats were called, became worried that if Māori were allowed to vote alongside European on the same basis, their seats would be, quote, swamped, because in some areas of the country there were far more Māori living than Europeans, and these representatives became worried that if these Māori were able to vote alongside European, they'd lose their seats. So, in 1876, the seats, the four seats, were made permanent. Prior to that, they were on a five-yearly kind of uh, ongoing uh, basis, that every five years they'd be reintroduced. 1876, they were written permanently into New Zealand law. Then, in 1893, a provision that allowed individual Māori property owners to also vote in the so-called European seats was abolished. Now, this is a fairly interesting and important point to note. Up until 1893, you could cast a vote in any electorate in which you owned the requisite amount of property. 
So New Zealand basically had a one house, one vote rule, as opposed to a one person, one vote rule. In 1893, this rule was abolished at the national level. Men, and now women, of course, since 1893, got to vote just once in the electorate in which they resided. It's interesting to note, however, that this one house, one vote rule still exists in New Zealand at the local electorate level. You can still vote in any local body election where you are a ratepayer, irrespective of where you actually live. So it carries on at our local level, but in 1893, it was turned into a one person, one vote rule with you voting in the electorate in which you reside. However, what it meant was that from 1893 right through to the mid-1970s, New Zealand had a rigidly segregated electoral system whereby anyone who had more than 50% Māori blood had to enrol and vote in the Māori seats and everyone who had less than 50% Māori blood had to enrol and vote in the European seats while people who had 50-50 Māori, non-Māori blood, could choose which electorate to go in. The other key point to note is that this number of seats, four seats, was retained uh, no matter how many Māori were voting. So no matter how many Māori were entitled to vote, there were only four seats to represent Māori who had to vote in those seats whereas this number of so-called European electorates increased along with the population. As the European uh, electorate increased, so did the number of seats increase there. So it's important to recognize that New Zealand had a racially based voting system in place. Only those who had 50% Māori blood, the charmingly called half-castes, got to choose whether to vote in a Māori or European electorate. Everyone else was required to vote in one or the other electorate, depending on the amount of Māori blood that was in their veins, to use the 19th century terminology, which carried through, as I say, right through to the mid-1970s. And these rules were actually enforced. They weren't just, you know, written on paper and then ignored in practice. A person who was voting in the wrong electorate in other words, a Māori voter who voted in the European electorate, or vice versa, was grounds for bringing an electoral petition and challenging the result of an election, which actually took place in the Raglan Electoral Petition of 1948, where it was found that certain voters had voted in Raglan when they shouldn't have because they had, quote, too much Māori blood, and they actually should have been voting in the Māori electorate, so their votes were struck off. This system then stayed in place right up to 1967. In 1967, Māori, which remember means people with more than 50% Māori blood, were first allowed to stand for election in the general electorates. And non-Māori, that's people with less than 50% Māori blood, were first allowed to stand for election in Māori electorates. Because recognise that the result of saying that only Māori could vote and stand for election in the Māori electorates was to keep the number of Māori representatives, people with more than 50% Māori blood, at four, irrespective of how many Māori there were. 
1967, that was changed and it was said, okay, so Māori and non-Māori can stand in any electorate they want. That still remains the case today. Any enrolled voter can stand for election in any electorate in New Zealand. So a person who's not on the Māori roll can stand for election in the Māori seat and vice versa. Just as I enrolled in Dunedin could stand for election in Epsom, even though I'm not on the roll there. However, in 1967, Māori voters were still not given a choice as to which electoral roll to go on. If you had more than 50% Māori blood, then you still had to enrol and vote as a Māori in the Māori electorates. If you were less than 50% Māori blood, you had to enrol and vote in the general electorates. And it wasn't until 1975 that two things happened. First of all, the definition of Māori was broadened to include anyone who was, quote, of Māori descent, not just those with 50% or more Māori ancestry. Anyone who can fuck a papa back to a Māori ancestor, no matter how far back you go, now meets the statutory definition of Māori and therefore becomes entitled to stand on the Māori, uh, to enrol in the Māori role. And secondly, in 1975, persons of Māori descent were given the option to choose between the Māori role or general role. So if you could fuck a papa back to a Māori individual, you got the right to enrol in the Māori role, but you didn't have to. If you prefer to enrol in the general role, you could do so instead. So from 1975, a lot more people became eligible to go on the Māori role if they wanted to do so and the compulsion to enrol on one role or the other was removed. Labour also introduced a floating number of Māori seats in 1975. So, as is the case today, the number of Māori seats would rise or fall in accordance with the size of the Māori role. However, National rescinded this move in 1976 and returned to a fixed number of four Māori seats. So, for all intents and purposes, the number of Māori seats remained at four, right through until 1993. And in 1993, this fixed number of four Māori seats was removed when the introduction of MMP came about. With MMP, the law was changed to allow the number of Māori seats to rise or fall, depending, in the final resort, on the numbers of people who choose to enrol in the Māori role. Which then brings us to this question of the Māori role and the part that it plays in determining the number of electorates, uh, Māori electorates today. Only people of Māori descent are eligible to enrol and vote for candidates on, in a Māori seat. So if you can fuck a papa back to a Māori ancestor, again, going back as far as you want, then you become entitled to, uh, to enrol in the Māori role. If you enrol in the Māori role, you become entitled to vote in a Māori seat. The way that people of Māori descent get onto the Māori role is through their first enrolment choice. So when you first enrol, which should be at age 18, it's compulsory to enrol to vote at age 18, you choose whether to enrol in the Māori role or the general role. And once you've made that initial choice, you can then thereafter change your decision 
only during the Māori electoral option period. This Māori electoral option period runs for four months every five years following each census. And during the Māori electoral option period, voters who are on the Māori roll, as well as those voters on the general roll who indicated they're of Māori descent when they enrolled, they can choose which role they wish to be on. And during this Māori electoral option period, they get one choice and one choice only. You can stay on the role you're on, or you can change roles, but once you make that choice, you're then stuck with it for the next five years until the next Māori electoral option period occurs. Following this Māori electoral option period, the number of Māori who've chosen to be on the Māori role ultimately determines something called the Māori electoral population. And this population number is then used by New Zealand's Representation Commission to determine how many Māori seats there are. One really important point to note is that the same population formula is used to determine how many Māori seats there will be as is used to determine how many general electorate seats there will be. So the Māori seats in today's parliament are not extra or special representation in the sense that those Māori who've chosen to enrol in the Māori role are entitled to any more seats in parliament than would an equivalent number of the general population. So in other words, for every 60,000 Māori on the electoral roll, there's a seat, in the same way as for every 60,000 people on the general electoral roll, there's a seat. The last Māori electoral option period was in 2018. Following this electoral option period, electoral boundaries were then drawn by the Representation Commission, they did so at the end of last year, the start of this year. And as a result of that process, the number of Māori electorates was determined to be at seven out of 71 electorates. The actual boundaries of the Māori seats are then determined by the Representation Commission. The Representation Commission must ensure that each Māori electorate includes the same amount of the Māori electoral population as does every other seat. So each Māori seat MP is there to represent the same number of Māori uh, in the electoral population as is every other Māori seat MP. The Commission then has to consider a range of factors in deciding where to place the boundaries between the Māori seats where the actual lines go that determine which seat you are in and therefore who you can vote for. An important point to note is that amongst those considerations that the Commission must take into account are tribal relationships within each potential seat. However, those, those relationships are just a consideration to be taken into account. They're only one factor to be considered alongside a range of others. So the Māori seats are still drawn up to represent geographical areas and therefore will include within each seat a number of different iwi, some of whom may not have particularly friendly relationships going back through time. 
So representation through the Māori seats is regional in nature, not tribal in nature. The other point to note about the seats, because of this requirement that they each contain basically the same number of people within each of them, is that the seats vary enormously in the area covered. One Māori seat, Te Tautonga, covers all of Te Waipunamu, the South Island, plus Wellington, plus the Kapiti Coast, so it stretches over Cook Strait to the bottom of the South North Island. It also includes the Chatham Islands, plus Rakiora Stewart Island. That is one Māori seat represented by one MP. Whereas another of the seats, Tamaki Makaro, covers urban Auckland, which is geographically a much smaller area. And also this requirement that each seat contain basically the same number of people within it also means that the Māori seats are in general far, far larger than the general electorate seats. There are a few general electorate seats that are bigger than the smallest of the Māori seats. Clutha Southland is geographically bigger than is Tamaki Makara, but by and large, the Māori seats are on the whole much bigger than the general electorate seats, with all the problems that has in terms of representation, being able to get around them and so on and so on. Okay, so that's what the Māori seats are. That's what they are, how they're sort of determined, how they've come to be and so on. One question we might ask is, well, why are they still here? Why are they still part of our electoral system going back to 1867, you know, and what, over 160 years later? Well, as we've noted, or as I suggested, the seats were first set up as a means to try to incorporate or assimilate Māori into the relatively new system of elected representation in the face of the problem caused by the property franchise requirements and at a time of Crown Māori conflict. However, the Māori seats came to mean much more than this to Māori themselves. The guarantee of Māori representation and participation in Parliament was seen as a recognition of continuing Māori sovereignty under the Treaty of Waitangi. Having a guaranteed input into Parliament, one that is set aside for Māori qua Māori, for Māori precisely because they were Māori, was seen as a recognition of their rights as a people to be included in the lawmaking processes of the country as a whole. And that right should be, exist, should be recognised, irrespective of whether Māori can generate a majority within any one particular part of the country. So the Māori seats have come to be seen by many Māori as being a tangible expression of the claim to be recognised as a special case. A special case based on Māori's status as tangata whenua and partners to the treaty, a special case when it comes to representing the, their interests as a part of the whole of New Zealand in Parliament. At the same time, however, we do have to recognise that the Māori seats have never been that destabilising or problematic as a practical matter for the non-Māori majority in Parliament. And for the longest period of time, the number of seats remained stuck at four, even as the General Assembly and then the Parliament grew in size because the European, the non-Māori seats, increased with population. 
Also, as Maria May uh, referred to in her part of the discussion, the Māori seats soon got incorporated into the wider party politics of the whole country. And so, particularly in the post-World War II era, the Māori seats became very much associated with the Labour Party, and the Māori MPs elected from those seats became a part of the Labour Party and its practices within the country. So the existence of the separate seats, the, the reserved seats for Māori, may have been ideologically galling to some Pākehā, and may have been politically inconvenient, especially to the National Party post-World War II, but they didn't represent a fundamental challenge to the ability of the majority of MPs who were sitting in the general electorate seats to basically get what they wanted. So the dominant Pākehā majority could still elect a majority of Pākehā MPs to Parliament, while the seats gave Māori only a symbolic and fixed four representatives to carry their concerns and interests into that Parliament. And that was the situation in the mid-1980s, when a Royal Commission on the Electoral System was established and was tasked to look into the electoral system as a whole, and as a part of that, to look at Māori representation. What the Royal Commission had to say is interesting because it's one of the few areas where its recommendations were then not actually incorporated into the NMP system that we have today. So what did the Commission say and why weren't its recommendations followed? The Royal Commission, set up in 1986, recommended that New Zealand should adopt the MMP voting system. This recommendation was much to the government of the day's surprise. They had no idea that the Commission was going to say something as crazy as all that, but that's what the Royal Commission thought was best for the country. It recommended MMP primarily because they thought MMP would improve representation across the board. It was just a better way of selecting and uh, placing representatives in Parliament. In particular, they thought MMP would allow for greater representation of Māori interests. You would be, have smaller parties that it thought would find it easier to get into Parliament to represent sectional interests. Underrepresented groups, women and ethnic minorities, would be more likely to become members of Parliament. You would get a broader, more representative uh, democratic legislature. Also, said the Royal Commission, because MMP as a proportional representation system would require coalition building between a variety of parties to actually form a government, this would mean that the interests of smaller groups would actually be given attention. You'd have to listen to smaller groups in order to build the sort of coalitions needed to run the country. So that's why the Royal Commission said MMP is a better, superior form of representation. However, Alongside uh, suggesting or recommending MMP as a voting system, the Royal Commission also recommended doing away with separate Māori seats under MMP. They said if you stick with first past the post, the old voting system, keep the Māori seats. But if you move to this new MMP system, we shouldn't have Māori seats. Well, why did it say that? Well, while the Royal Commission recognised that the Māori seats had a symbolic importance to Māori, the Royal Commission also thought that these separate Māori seats hadn't actually done Māori many favours in the wider political system. 
they felt that having four Māori seats had to an effect ghettoise the Māori vote. The burden of representing Māori interests had been seen as falling on just these four MPs. While the rest of the nation's MPs were seen as having no responsibility for representing Māori interests because, well, Māori weren't voting for them. And the Māori MPs might have tried to do this job, they may have tried their best to represent Māori interests, but because they were such a small voice in the larger parliament, and because they were subject to their political party's uh, internal disciplinary procedures, they just weren't able to represent Māori interests very well. So, said the Royal Commission, Māori were in essence subject to the goodwill of non-Māori MPs to advance their interests. And because these non-Māori MPs didn't really owe Māori voters anything, because Māori hadn't voted for them in the first place, these non-Māori MPs just weren't really doing much for Māori. And so the Royal Commission thought this was a less than ideal situation. And so the Royal Commission proposed that the reserved Māori seats be abolished, that Māori be included with Pākehā on a single electoral roll, to cast their constituency votes in the same electorates. However, remember the importance of the party vote under MNP, because of course the MNP voting system that the Royal Commission uh, recommended said that people shouldn't just vote for their local electorate candidates using their candidate electorate vote, they also should vote for the political party they wish to see represented in Parliament using a party vote. And, said the Royal Commission, this party vote could be used in a way to help Māori. In two ways. First of all, the value of the party vote would encourage all the political parties to pursue the Māori vote by promoting Māori candidates high in their party lists. And the party vote would provide an incentive to consider Māori interests and propose policies that made the party attractive to Māori voters. Because under MNP, it's the party vote that ultimately determines how many seats the party gets in Parliament. And so, said the Royal Commission, having an incentive to chase votes from wherever you can find them would lead parties to want to promote Māori interests, promote Māori individuals, take care of Māori. And then secondly, the Royal Commission also said that if necessary, the representation threshold of the party vote, the 5% you need to get into Parliament, that representation threshold could be lowered for Māori parties to ensure that a distinctive Māori voice is still to be heard in Parliament. So Māori parties may not need to get the 5% in order to get into Parliament. Now this second point is quite an interesting one because it frequently gets ignored when people claim that the Royal Commission recommended abolishing the Māori seats. Yes, it's true, the Royal Commission did recommend that. But the Royal Commission was not hostile to the idea of having differential voting rules to ensure Māori representation. They just thought a better voting rule would be to say that Māori parties could get into Parliament without having to get the 5% of the vote required for any other party. Now, the overall point of the Commission's recommendations 
was that separate Māori representation might have ensured that some Māori voice is still heard in Parliament. It got four Māori MPs into Parliament all the time. But it came at the cost of consigning that voice to the status of a permanent minority. Instead, the Royal Commission sought ways that would allow Māori to be better able to participate in the process of majority formation within Parliament. And they thought the idea of separate or a dedicated constituency representation, combined with the incentives for parties to maximise the party vote from Māori voters, would best achieve this result. Now, on its face, this is a very political science kind of systems theory approach to the topic. It's got a nice logical integrity. It's got a good rational structure. It's dealing with incentives. It's dealing with, you know, rational actors acting in, you know, ways that will maximize and so on and so on. What it properly, what it failed to properly take into account, however, were the view of Māori. What did Māori think about the seats in their future? Now, to some extent, this wasn't the commission's fault. The commission had tried to engage with Māori, but that hadn't been very successful. It hadn't been very good at actually being able to reach out and get Māori to talk with it. However, while the commission had recognised the symbolic value of the seats to Māori, it's clear that they didn't understand just how much these were valued by Māori as a group. Because the response from Māori to the commission's recommendations was not positive. And the opposition to the commission's recommendations crystallised in 1993 around the proposed electoral reform bill, which established the legal structure for the MMP system that voters were then to vote on at the 1993 referendum. Just to remind you, 1992 there was a referendum and a majority indicated they wanted to change electoral systems. So between 1992 and 1993, Parliament passed a bill and said this is what the new MMP voting system will look like. And then in the 1993 election, New Zealand voters voted on whether they wanted this new bill, the MMP bill, to become our law, or whether they wanted to stick with the old legislation, the first past the post voting system. So in 1993, Parliament was discussing what the legislation should look like to set up the new MMP system, if voters chose it. And this bill, when first introduced, followed the, commission, uh, the Royal Commission's recommendations and did not include any Māori seats. It also didn't include the Royal Commission's recommendation that the representation threshold for Māori parties could be set aside. That wasn't included. But it followed the Commission's recommendation and didn't put Māori seats in the new bill. The bill was then sent for consideration to Parliament's Electoral Law Select Committee for public submissions. And Māori input was sought through a series of regional hui, culminating in a national hui, under the guidance of a steering committee made up of representatives of Māori organisations. And basically the participants at these hui told the Select Committee to go and get stuffed. They didn't want the reserved Māori seats taken away, and they didn't think that the chance to contest the party vote under MMP would be an adequate guarantee of representation of their interests in Parliament. 
They heard what the Royal Commission said. The Royal Commission had its view. But as far as Māori were concerned, these seats were so valuable and so important that they just should not be taken away. And the near universal Māori dissatisfaction with the provisions in the bill made it politically impossible for the re reserved seats to be abolished in 1993. Māori didn't want to be seen as just another interest group fighting it out in the electoral arena. Rather, the guarantee of representation afforded by the Māori seats was seen as too important a recognition, too important a, uh, a, um, a, a part of their special constitutional status in New Zealand to be lost. So the current system was adopted where the Māori seats continue with the number determined by the Māori electoral population and that Māori electoral population is in turn ultimately determined by the number of Māori voters who choose to go on the Māori roll rather than the general roll. The more Māori voters who choose to go on the Māori roll, the more Māori seats there are. The fewer Māori voters who choose to go on the Māori roll, the fewer Māori seats there are. And as such, that decision by individual Māori, individual Māori voters acts as a kind of de facto referendum on the Māori seat's future. If and when Māori voters no longer want the seats by choosing not to go in the Māori role, then the seats will automatically disappear from our electoral system because if the Māori electoral population falls, the number of Māori seats automatically falls as well. And that is where we are today. So I will finish my talking at you and uh, throw it over for questions. Anything that may have come through that you would like to discuss? What I wanted to know was when did that five yearly review stop? So the five so yearly... Right at the beginning for Māori electorates. Yeah. Um, they were initially a temporary thing and it was yeah. going to be, you know, a five-year thing. Did the law actually change to make them permanent? Yeah. So... Eight, uh, was that 1893 with the same other changes? No, it was eight, I think it was 1876. Okay. That they were just, so prior to that, so 1867, it was said there shall be Māori seats for five years. And right. then when the five years came up, the parliament said, okay, we'll keep the Māori seats on for another five years. And then in 1876, it was just said there shall be four Māori seats, full stop, and no... No. So from 1876 onwards, they were just a part Six. of the, the system. Yeah. And, it, and is that around the same time as the gold mining lease rights stopped? Or was that, you know, were they considering that kind of timeliness of temporary seats at the same time? Or was it done at a different... So, so the, the, gold mining, uh, the gold mining seats were definitely the model that the Māori seats originally worked off. Right. So, of course, you had all these gold miners coming into Otago, mining, not actually meeting the property qualification, but basically causing all sorts of hell. You know, you know, they were trouble, they were, you know, and so Parliament said, look, I tell you what, let's get ourselves some representatives from these guys into Parliament to kind of, you know, assuage their, you know, concerns. But of course, the gold mining fizzled when the gold ran out those guys all buggered off and you were left with the property owners. So you no longer had the problem of, um, you know, them as yeah. dealt with. Whereas Māori, you know, continued. They didn't go away, funnily no, exactly. enough. And so Parliament's response to this was, okay, look, we'll keep these four Māori seats in there. But essentially, 
the four Māori seats were treated with what some historians have called just basically a benign neglect. So the, the rules around voting in the Māori seats were much laxer than applied in the, 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 the general, the, the European seats. So there wasn't a um, secret ballot in the Māori seats until the 1930s. People were still voting by a show of hands. Whereas it was in the 1870s that, you know, um, the European secret seats ballot. adopted the secret ballot. Um, we, you talked a little bit earlier, there's discussion earlier about uh, voter rolls. There was no formal voting rolls in the Māori electorates until the 1940s. And there was no compulsion to enroll in the Māori seats until the early 1950s. So these aspects of it were, so the, the Māori seats were basically, look, we'll just put Māori in these seats, they can choose their representatives, but there was no real concern or care paid to how that was taking place in the same way as was occurring in the European seats. If you choose to change and go on the Māori role today, do you actually have to provide, you know, what proof is acceptable? Well, first of all, you can't choose to change and to go on the Māori role now. Uh, if you're already enrolled to vote, you are stuck on that role until the next Māori electoral option period takes place, which won't be until 2023. So it's only during that four-month period after each census yeah. that people are, are allowed to go from one role to the other. And when we lost that last census with the earthquake consequences, that removed their ability to change at all, didn't it? Yep. So there was yeah. a, there was, so it's there was a, I think an eight year gap between yeah. services at that point. Yeah. So the question then is the broader question though, is what proof do you have to show? Mm. The short answer is you don't, but if you enroll on the Māori role and you can't actually fuck a papa back, that would be grounds for challenging your vote uh, in any electoral petition sense. So if you cast your vote on the, Maori, if you enroll in the Māori role and cast a vote in a Māori seat when you actually can't fuck a papa back to any Māori ancestor, your right to be on the role can be challenged. You can be struck off the role and your vote can be discounted. Yeah. If anyone so chose. Yeah. Um, and and Adele Walsh asks, do you know what the current Māori electoral role population is? I don't know the exact numbers, but it's around 50. So... Of those people on the on the role, the general the roles, full stop, who said they're of Maori descent, about half are on the Maori role, and are about about half are on the general role. So the actual number, Maria may know. I might just chuck it over to her. Yeah, I'm not sure if she's there right now. We'll ask her when she starts up. Yeah, sure. Um, the other thing that it says he were. Other alternatives to universal Maori male suffrage considered at the time? I don't know enough of the history, I'm afraid. I don't mm. know. I mean, the problem, of course, would have been uh, you know, given that Maori ownership was communal, how you'd have done anything in terms of property, qualification, or so on. Um, I, I just don't know, I'm afraid. And, and a follow up to that was do you think that the universal suffrage influenced the decisions later to and then universal female suffragists that came soon after? That'd be a really interesting question. I, I, I don't know whether that's been traced, but I could certainly imagine that there would have been Pākehā discount, or, you know, you know, how come these Māori people are allowed to vote when I can't? And mm. I'm sure that probably did feed into the general debates around 
you know, who ought to have the franchise and so on. I can't yeah. see why it couldn't have. Yeah. It, yeah, it'd be very fascinating to look at because I would think that women would equally feel disenfranchised in the 1880s, um, you know, yep. as the men would have initially been the ones to have gone, how come these people can and we can't? There's certainly been a lot of historical um, study of the role of Māori women in getting the vote in 1893 because Māori women were very strongly advocating for that. Yeah, and um, Renee was just asking to confirm the year when the blood quantum rule um, for an enablement to be on the Māori roll was changed. Um, and she said she thought you said 75, and I wrote that down. You said 1975. 75. Yeah. Which, I mean, is quite remarkable. I was born in 1971. So it's sort of within my lifetime that New Zealand had, and, you know, it's not too strong to call it an apartheid voting system. Mm. And, and her comment is, she noticed that it's, it's the same year as the establishment of the Waitangi Tribunal. Well, exactly. It was the, the Labour government at that time, and also Fida Cooper, the Land March. Yeah, she was amazing. That's a very important period of our history. Uh, well, I'm going to um, thank you very much on behalf of everyone here. That was, I just want to listen to it again, again, and I want to see it. Have you anywhere done a timeline of the changes in our system like that, because it would be wonderful to see it as an actual physical chart. Uh, I haven't, um, I'm not sure if one exists, uh, but if people are interested in the history to the Māori seats and everything up until the mid 1980s, uh, the appendix to the Royal Commission's report uh, has a very good history of the develop, you know, the introduction of the Maori seats and the development through to the mid 1980s. Um, thereafter, I can only point you to a book called Electoral Law in New Zealand Practice and Policy by an author called Andrew Geddes. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. Well, well, um, um, many thanks, Namihi, from all of us here. Um, it was just great work. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website.